Welcome to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. Each week we bring you inspiring conversations with activists, grassroots leaders, authors and others working to make the world a better place. Today we're looking at the intersection of war and the climate crisis. Ukraine's leading climate scientist has said that the climate crisis and the war against Ukraine have direct connections and the same roots, that is, our dependence on fossil fuels. Our guest today, Michael Clare, has examined war and fossil fuels for decades. He's Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, defence correspondent for The Nation magazine and author of numerous books, including All Hell Breaking Loose, The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change. From Free Speech TV, Just Solutions. Well, as we heard in the introduction, whether or not this war on Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine, is directly around resources, it is certainly being financed by oil and gas. 60% of Russia's exports are oil and gas. And Bill McKibben wrote recently in The Guardian that that supplies the money that powers the country's military machine. So as somebody who has for many years written and researched and spoken about the connection between resources and conflict, what is your take? That's not the only resource that that we should be thinking about when we think about Ukraine. Uh, is, uh, I'll start with that. But you, you're quite correct that, that oil and gas exports and uh, other resources are what finances Putin's war machine and has for a long time. Uh, uh, Russia is a petro-state, much like Saudi Arabia and the Gulf kingdoms that, that rely on oil and gas for their finances. And there wouldn't be a Russia without oil and gas exports. So that's certainly a factor. And of course, that's why the EU and the US are trying to sanction those oil and gas resources because they believe that by cutting off that income, they'll diminish uh, Putin's ability to sustain warfare uh, now and in the future. So clearly oil and gas is a pivotal issue here. But I also wanna point out that uh, food or rather, you know, the land is a key issue, uh, I believe, in all of this. Uh, Ukraine is one of the world's leading producers of grain and has been for centuries. It's the breadbasket of Europe. This is what Hitler uh, sought when he invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, when he spoke of Lebensraum. It was the conquest of Ukraine and the expulsion of its inhabitants uh, so that German farmers could come and take over the land because Ukraine has such rich farmland. And I, I, I think this farmland is part of, part, not the main, but part of what Putin values about Ukraine, why he is so determined to get control of this area and, and reconnect it with, with the rest of Russia or Russia proper. Uh, it, it's, it's part of the identity. Uh, I, I think it's part of the essential identity of, of Ukraine as, as a primary food producer. And I just want to point out um, 
the fact that Ukraine is no longer producing wheat and Russia's exports have been sanctioned is triggering a global food crisis right now. Terrible food crisis around the world. The prices of grains, uh, wheat and, and, and other grains in North Africa and the Middle East are going through the roof. And there have been protests throughout the region because of rising food prices. So there, there is a connection, uh, another connection between resources and dis social distress and conflict. And of course, how we produce food and certainly the industrial agricultural machines that we have are very petrochemical based themselves. And so there's an even deeper connection there to petrochemicals and even the food that we're consuming and that we're being impacted by now because of what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, uh, yes, absolutely. Both countries are major producers of fertilizer, of artificial fertilizer. In fact, they're among the major exporters of 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 fertilizers and because those are also being blocked or Ukraine isn't able to export those products, uh, that's contributing to, uh, to, to an escalating food crisis around the world because many countries rely on that fertilizer products and the fertilizers are, are products of, of petrochemicals, they're petrochemical rely on that as a feedstock and that's contributing to the to to the rising prices and and this is going to be a long range food crisis around the world and there's another uh, interesting connection to climate change because other major producers of grain namely China and Australia are suffering from extreme flooding and this certainly is a product of climate change and extreme storm activity. And because of that, their grain harvests are down. So Australia isn't able to make up for the losses of Ukraine and Russia. And China is being forced to buy grain on the world market, driving up the prices and making, making this things even more difficult for people in poorer countries in Africa and the Middle East. Well, in terms of the ripple effect of what's happening right now, Russia's invasion on Ukraine, on energy prices, on food prices, of course, it always seems that there are corporate uh, winners in many of these situations. Of course, there's the military industrial complex, but also many fossil fuel companies are seeing the potential for a windfall in this. In fact, uh, I think it's Chenier, I might be mispronouncing that, but that's America's largest exporter of liquefied natural gas. Stock prices shot up right after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And in fact, the CEO said that the high price of energy and the volatility right now as a result of the invasion, that could actually drive more uh, long-term contracts for some of these oil and gas companies. So as we always see in times of conflict, we have the losers who are very often the civilians, the people on the ground, but the winners are very often corporate entities that are either part of the military industrial complex or maybe the fossil fuel industries as well 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 you said that very well in fact uh, indeed well I, I, let's divide out uh, petroleum from from natural gas because they each have a, a story to tell uh, uh, Europe 
is heavily dependent on Russian oil and natural gas, heavily dependent for, for on both. Uh, as, a, as a result of the cutoff of, uh, it's, it's not a cutoff, but, a, but a, a, a reduction in European dependence on Russian oil, uh, the, the Europeans are buying more oil from other parts of the world, especially the Middle East, and that drives up prices everywhere because oil is traded internationally. So Americans are being forced to pay higher prices for their gasoline. And this is going to have political effects if it continues in the midterm elections coming up in a few months because uh, Americans, especially lower income Americans, are suffering from higher gasoline prices. So this is one consequence of this. Of course, the oil companies, like you say, are having a windfall. But I'd like to uh, speak a little bit about, you spoke of Chenier and liquefied natural gas. Uh, Europe's main vulnerability is its reliance on Russian natural gas. Russia is the world's leading uh, producer of natural gas exports uh, to Europe. It provides something like 40% of Europe's natural gas. And the only way to replace that, which, which, which the Europeans say they're now in, in, intending to do, is to import it in the form of LNG, because you, you can't build pipelines from the U.S., and from the Middle East and, and from Asia uh, for gas. It's, it's just it's impractical to do that. You have to do it by ship. And the only way you can uh, deliver gas by ship is to uh, compress it and liquefy it and, and sell it, uh, ship it by in this liquefied form, LNG. And that's a very specialized, costly operation. Only a few countries could do that. And the US is now about to become one of the world's leading uh, suppliers of LNG with all the new terminals that are being built that the Biden administration says we're gonna accelerate the construction of LNG plants uh, to replace uh, the piped gas from Russia to Europe. And these are major investments. If you're gonna build one of these things, you need 30 years of operation. So what we're talking about here is a locking in on both ends, at the US end and, and the European end, a commitment to fossil fuels, you know, fossil fuels forever. So there go our commitment, which the Biden administration was talking about just a year ago, there go our commitments to um, eliminating reliance on fossil fuels so that we could slow the warming of the planet. Uh, I'm afraid this is taking us in the opposite direction of continued uh, reliance on fossil fuels. In fact, many are saying this is a completely missed opportunity that instead of doubling down on renewable energy, which would free us from the shackles of being dependent on these petrostates, that we are instead doubling down, as you said, on our commitment to fossil fuels and locking in our relationship with them for decades to come. Yeah, you said that very well. 
um, you know, I don't, I don't know that I could say much more except the specifics of, of these uh, rushed construction of these LNG export facilities in the U.S., and rushed construction of LNG, um, what's called regasification facilities in Europe to turn the liquefied LNG back into a gas. And, and, and these are, you know, billions of dollars of new construction that could have been devoted to, as you say, uh, investment in, in wind power and solar power uh, that would have eliminated our dependence on fossil fuels. So uh, we're going in the wrong direction. And this is going to mean the planet is going to continue heating up with devastating consequences. This also seems to be a missed opportunity for cooperation around the climate crisis and around food shortages. And you mentioned how the uh, the conflict in Ukraine, that that is exacerbating uh, food shortages globally. But when we prioritise spending on the military industrial conflict, when we prioritise spending billions, in fact, trillions on a nuclear arsenal that's part of the Cold War, that's taking not just money, valuable resources away from investing in renewable energies and alternatives to these systems that are not sustainable. It's also taking away our capacity to work internationally in a cooperative capacity as well with scientists in China, with scientists in Russia. Talk a little bit about that, that those missed opportunities are also part of this. Well, this is utterly catastrophic and despicable. Uh, the, the, uh, the new defense budget of the U.S. defense budget came out on Monday uh, of this week, on March 28th, and it's all about confronting China, uh, confronting China everywhere and acquiring more weapons. It's a 10% increase in the defense budget this year over last year, all of it about confronting China and building alliances to strangle China in the Indo-Pacific region. That's all of what it's about. And under these circumstances, China feels threatened and encircled, and it's devoting its uh, own resources, its own capabilities to, to defending itself against this U.S. Uh, the onslaught, encirclement. And under those circumstances, it's virtually impossible to think about how the U.S. and China are going to cooperate to solve the climate crisis. And you can't solve the climate crisis unless the U.S. and China cooperate. So this, this determination to, to, um, uh, to, to encircle China and, and strangle its growth, which has taken over in Washington, has been taken over in Washington, is uh, it's insane, it's, it's suicidal for our society because it means climate change is gonna accelerate and we're gonna suffer the consequences directly. But that seems to be the policy that the administration has chosen. You're listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran, and today we're speaking with Michael Clare, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, author and professor emeritus of peace and world security studies at Hampshire College. Well, Professor Clare, your latest book is very much an examination of 
how the Department of Defense and the US military views climate change. And that's all hell breaking loose, the Pentagon's perspective on climate change. And I will talk about that in just a moment. But I want to look back to a book that you wrote 10 years ago, The Race for What's Left, The Global Scramble for the World's Last Resources. And as you mentioned earlier, it's not just fossil fuels. You talk about uh, food, uh, wheat, but also in that book, you talk about rare earth metals and other areas that are being either are currently in a conflict area or certainly will be. And, And as we talk about the climate crisis, the Arctic, of course, is the canary in the coal mine. It is showing us exactly what is happening because the planet is warming. And yet that's also a crucial area of this geopolitical uh, warmongering in many ways when you have countries like Russia, like the US, like Canada, vying for control of that very valuable area because of fossil fuels that are there as well. So, I mean, everything is meshed. But talk a little bit about that, about areas like the Arctic that are already severely damaged because of the climate crisis and the potential for even more damage because of this geopolitical, this this escalation of conflicts between these countries. Uh, The Arctic is a very interesting region to follow. This is the one part of the world where, where you could see climate change having an effect visually from space. So if you if you look at, at um, images of the Arctic uh, from satellites from say 20 years ago in the summer, you you see uh, you see an area covered with ice. And if you look at satellite images from this past summer, you see that the ice is shrinking and each summer it shrinks more. Uh, so this is plainly visible and it's measurable. The, the Arctic ice cap is melting um, by extraordinary amounts, uh, visible each year. And what this means is, is that an a area that was once inaccessible to humans for, for resource purposes or military purposes is now suddenly open, at least in the summer, and, and the summer period, it keeps ex- extending and on both ends. So it's now possible to explore for and exploit the uh, natural resources of the Arctic region. And it turns out the Arctic is very rich in natural resources, not only oil and natural gas, but also valuable minerals, including uranium, gold, and copper, iron, and rare earths. A lot of these are found in Greenland, uh, which is also covered by glaciers that are melting, exposing areas, uh, opening them up for mining, uh, and also offshore areas of offshore Russia, offshore Alaska, and offshore Canada, and so on. And now these areas are being hotly contested because of their value. But this is also becoming an area of military contestation because of because of the value of the area and the, its military value. It's much easier to uh, to send ships or missiles from Russia to the U.S. and vice versa uh, than ever before. And so the U.S. is building up its military capabilities at this very moment. The 
uh, army is conducting war games in Alaska to prepare U.S. troops for future combat against Russia in the Arctic region. And Russia uh, or frequently conducts military maneuvers in the Arctic for the opposite region. So this is, this is becoming an area of geopolitical contestation. China has also become involved. China is interested in using the polar route as a future a route for transport of goods and raw materials between China and Europe. It would be much faster for, for delivering products when that route is open. And China's very interested in Greenland as a source of raw materials. So it too is contending uh, in the area. All of this made possible by climate change. It wouldn't be possible if, if the ice weren't melting. Uh, so here you see how, how all of these factors are, are intertwined. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Pentagon's attitude towards the climate crisis. Your latest book, All Hell Breaking Loose, The Pentagon's Perspective on Climate Change. And even during the four years of the Trump presidency, where the climate crisis was essentially erased from all federal narrative, the Department of Defense still acknowledged that this is a major issue. So what is the attitude of the Department of Defense, of the Pentagon towards the climate crisis? Albeit, as you've just laid out, they're taking advantage of the effects of the crisis in terms of you know the melting ice in the Arctic. So, you know, if you ask anybody in the military's uh, officers uh, what their priorities are, they'll say that their priorities are you know preparing for a possible conflict with Russia or China. That that'll come first. But then, if you if you talk you know if you press them further, they'll they'll uh, explain that their ability to do that will increasingly be degraded by the impacts of climate change. For example, uh, their bases, especially the Navy's bases on the East Coast and the West Coast are extremely vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. A after all, uh, the, uh, the, the majority of, of, of America's uh, major military bases on the East Coast are oriented towards, you know, projecting power towards Europe and the Middle East, and they're right on the coastline and in Virginia and Florida, all up and down the coast, but especially uh, around Norfolk, Virginia, where you where the uh, largest uh, naval base in the world is located, Norfolk Naval Station, and. This space is, is barely above sea level at the best of times and it is sinking because of, of subsidence. It's built on, 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 on mudflats and with sea level rise and storm activity, this space is severely endangered. Every Navy base on the East Coast is at risk from rising seas and extreme storm activity. So the U.S. military is aware that their ability to carry out their function is endangered by climate change, and it's going to get worse every year into the future. Their bases on the West Coast are threatened by fires, forest fires, wildfires, and some of them have, have had to uh, face extreme fires in recent years. 
their bases in the Pacific, essential to contesting China, are islands at sea level that are either going to sink into the ocean as it rises or are going to be destroyed by typhoons. So uh, climate change is is much an enemy, if not more of an enemy to the military than China and Russia is at this point. And they're very aware of this. Well, you have written so extensively about this over the years. You've such a huge body of work. But I'd like to, as we just finish up, we just have a few minutes left. Bring it back to where we started, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And you talk about that and also other areas of conflict in the world in a new article that's uh, published on Common Dreams and also Tom Dispatch. And it's called The Geopolitics of Hell. And you do say that in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, tensions are only going to increase do you see any bright spots? Like what are possible solutions out of not just what's happening right now in Ukraine, but everything that you've laid down? We're doubling down on investing in fossil fuel infrastructure. We're going the wrong direction when it terms to the, comes to the climate crisis. And we have increasing areas of global conflict. What, as somebody who has studied not just conflict, but also peace, what do we need to do? Uh, I've given this a lot of thought and, you know, it's hard at this very moment to, to be very optimistic. Let, let's be clear, when a war is underway and, and uh, people are suffering terribly, so we have to try to imagine uh, what, what, what would bring hope after this is all over. And for me, what, what I think needs to happen is that the climate change movement or the climate emergency movement, which has been so focused exclusively on climate change issues, has to also become an anti-militarism movement. Because uh, from now on, uh, it, it, the priorities in Washington and in European capitals um, and in Russia and China is not going to be climate change. It's going to be military priorities, defending against each other. So uh, climate change is going to be pushed to the side as a priority. And as a result, we're not going to be able to achieve the objective of the Paris Climate Agreement to stop warming at two degrees centigrade. And that's going to be utterly catastrophic. So I pray that the climate movement, which has achieved such great, demonstrated such enormous support around the world, can refocus to view militarism as, as, as you said earlier, that militarism and, and fossil fuel addiction are totally interrelated. And you cannot you cannot eliminate one without the other. So uh, the hope would be that that uh, a peace movement and a and a climate change movement coalesce uh, into one global movement against both dangers, militarism and fossil fuel addiction. And of course, the climate movement, as we have seen, really uh, the strongest voices there are young people. And through our history, we've often seen young people leading the way in anti-war movements as well. So maybe there is some hope. Well, certainly so. And uh, and I am, I have to say, I, I've been moved by the heroic and resistance of people in Russia 
against the war at great risk to, to their safety and uh, uh, at risk of going to jail. And growing numbers of them have, have protested the war and spoken out for peace. So uh, we, we know that even in Russia, there's a strong desire for peace, not to mention in Ukraine and in Europe. So there is hope there. Well, Professor Michael Clare, thank you so much for being our guest today on Just Solutions. Thank you. Well, thank you for giving us this opportunity to, to raise these important questions. Thank you. Michael Clare is an author, the defence correspondent for The Nation magazine and Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College. You've been listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can watch past shows and find out more information at freespeech.org. For Free Speech TV, Just Solutions, I'm Maeve Conran.